because I'm a pastor, I think, I get pulled in sometimes into people's stories and into their lives, and I try to help. I try to make a difference. Uh, oftentimes, I see the, the other side of things. It's so easy to come in on a Sunday morning and to smile, you know, and to, and to, to do the deal where we all look like everything's fine, got my act together, uh, my world is good. But I know that sometimes that's not true. Listen to this letter that a mother who entered her daughter's bedroom one afternoon saw this letter on the bed, and she unfolded it and with trembling hands. These are the words that she read. Dear Mom, it is with much regret and sorrow that I'm telling you I've run away with my new boyfriend. I know how upset you'll be, but I'm truly happy and I feel so free for the first time in my life. Please find it in your heart to be glad for me. I have found genuine passion with T-Bone. He is so cool. With all his piercings and his giant, crazy eagle tattoo, his big motorcycle, and that wild hair. I love him. But that's not all, Mom. I'm pregnant. And if it's a boy, we're going to name him Skinnyhead. And if it's a girl, Sandpaper. Can you believe it? T-Bone says we'll be really happy out in his trailer in the woods. He wants to have more children, and you know that's always been one of my dreams. I've learned by watching the last two seasons of Breaking Bad that methamphetamine doesn't really hurt people as much as everyone says. So we've decided to sell it to help support ourselves and our kids. In the meantime, please pray for the medical profession to find a cure for HIV. I want T-Bone to get better. With all his issues with the law and his struggles over addictions, he deserves a break. Don't worry, Mom. I'm 15 years old now, and I know how to take care of myself. Someday, I'll come back so you and Dad can get to know your grandchildren. Oh, and I'm so sorry about all the money that I took from your purse when I left. Your daughter, Judith. P.S. Mom. None of that's true. I'm over at Sarah's house. I just wanted to show you that there are things worse in life than the report card that you're going to find in my desk drawer. Now, for most of us, well, some of us, that could be a likely scenario. For my parents, that... But for a lot of us, you think, oh, man, that's maybe not going to happen. But what if it did? How would you feel if your 15-year-old daughter got pregnant, ran off, married her boyfriend, and you didn't see her for three, four, five years, and then she showed back up on your doorstep, and she's broke and discouraged, and he's gone? And what? I mean, how do you feel? How do you respond to that? Well, let me give you another scenario. Let's say that what your most trusted employee... The person that you would just, you know, give as much freedom as anybody, they embezzle a hundred grand from the company. They disappear down to the Cayman Islands. And two, three, four months go by, and they show back up in your office. They're broke. They look pitiful. They go, wow, man, I'm really so sorry. I took all that money, and I wonder if I could get my old job back. How do you feel? What do you do? How do you respond when things like that 
uh, happened. Well, that's what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. How do we even begin to forgive people sometimes? When we're hurt, when we're disappointed, how do you deal with betrayal? How, how, how do we look at past wrongs that have been done and accept that wrongdoer as Christ has accepted us? Because you know and I know, and maybe nobody else knows, just how much you have offended him and to what a great degree he has forgiven you. So how do we extend that ministry from him who reconciled us to other people? Well, there's a little letter. It's toward the back of your Bibles. It's uh, between Titus and Hebrews. It's called Philemon. It's a short letter, and it's the only personal letter like this that we have still in existence that Paul uh, ever wrote. And it is a message of forgiveness, of second chances, of mercy. It's a message about equality in Christ. The power of the gospel to transcend, I started to say social boundaries, but really all boundaries. It's a message about grace. Philemon was one of Paul's converts who lived in Colossae. And in 62 AD, a crime occurred in Philemon's household. And this particular crime would have remained unsolved and historically unknown. We would have never heard about this except for the fact that the fugitive fled to Rome. And in that day, Rome was a place to run to. It was like New York City is in modern culture. It's a place you could get lost. It's a big city where you could become invisible. But there, this guy crosses paths with the Apostle Paul. Paul is under house arrest in Rome. He's awaiting his trial uh, before Caesar. It's in between that time. And although he's in chains and there are a lot of limitations, there's also some freedom. In fact, he was able to preach the gospel uh, to those who he came in contact with, including this fugitive named Onesimus. Onesimus was one of 60 million slaves that shouldered uh, the weight of Rome. Almost everything was done by slaves in the Roman Empire in those days. And that particular system and that particular time in history, it's never right, uh, but it was, it was especially brutal. Under Roman law, a slave was not even a person. They didn't even think of them as, as people or as humans, but just a thing to own, an object. And the person, he or she who was a slave, had absolutely no rights whatsoever. And for, and for that reason, there could be no such thing as justice for a slave because how would you do that when they're concerned? I mean, they're, they're not even a person. A master had absolute power over them. He could punish them any way he wanted. They were beaten with rods, with a lash, they would make a huge knot in the end of a rope and beat them with it. If they ran away or misbehave in a specific way, it was common for them to be branded on their forehead or another part of their body. 
so that everyone could see that they were a thief or a runaway or, you know, whatever it was. And in the end, if they continued to discipline them in all those ways, and it just wasn't working, they couldn't be reclaimed, they couldn't get control of this person, they would crucify them. Very similar way that even our Lord was crucified. So before Onesimus fled, he had likely stolen something. He had taken some money. He had to get a fresh start. He had to have some way, you know, to get by. So he stole money from his master, Philemon. So not only now is he a fugitive, he's a runaway, but he's a criminal. He's a candidate for at least the branding or worse, if he ever gets caught, if they ever bring him back. And he knows that. I don't know if you've ever been on the run, uh, personally or privately, you know, in your mind, if you've ever been in hiding, if you've ever tried to be elusive, if you've ever uh, escaped, you might have just a little bit of, of the idea of how Onesimus felt. His freedom wouldn't have felt very free because he's always looking over his shoulder. He's always wondering, is that guy watching me? Do they see me? Do they know who I am? And so he, he's just real restricted in how much he can enjoy this freedom. There is nothing as oppressive as running from the wrongs that we've done. There are no foxholes deep enough. There's no amount of drugs strong enough. There's nothing that can ease that sense of guilt and that fear and that paranoia. Some of you are living there right now. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It just sucks all your energy. It just pulls the life out of you. Fortunately for Onesimus, God had a freedom waiting that was beyond anything he could have ever dreamed of. And through his contact with Paul, Onesimus found Christ. And these shackles of fear and shame, they, they just break open and fall to the ground. He is free. And in this new relationship, that sense of guilt and that fear, it's gone because in Jesus, he finds complete, unconditional, total forgiveness. And he feels that cleansing, that liberty. But freedom in Christ didn't absolve all of his issues, all of his debts, all of his responsibilities, the fact that he ran away, the fact that he stole this money. And Paul knew that although Onesimus' slate was wiped clean, I mean, he owed zero now uh, before the Lord, before God, he is completely free, he is guiltless in Christ. A lot of, and if you go to that seminar, you're going to understand that maybe in a bigger way because a lot of us think, well, I got saved and that gets me out of hell, but I've still got this boatload of sin, or this boatload of shame or this past. And we don't understand how not only we've been crucified in Christ at this moment and how we step into a future that's crucified, but our past is as well. That was huge for me when I began to understand that. Onesimus gets it. And for the first time in his life, he's just like, wow, I didn't know it could be this way. Oh, but what about Philemon? Paul, uh, with all these issues on the table, sits down and, and, he, and he writes this letter. 
He gives it to Onesimus and he says, I want you yourself, I want you to take this back and hand deliver it to Philemon, your former master. And what Paul is doing is he's seeking to resolve this conflict in a godly way. Now most of us would think, Whoa, Paul, that's kind of heavy. Couldn't we just kind of let bygones be bygones? I mean, if I go back, this is incredibly risky. I mean, I've got a new life here. If I get caught, I get caught. But why would I turn around and walk right back into that? It's been a while. I got a feeling he's pretty mad about this. I'm a criminal. But he does it. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, our healing and growth take place in, not excluded from, not separated from, the body of Christ. Now, this may be just uh, new information for some, and you think, well, I, I think my life's my life, and the, the church or you know, the people around me who are believers I'm in this community with, they're kind of a separate thing. That, so it may be brand new information to think, what are you saying? You're saying that everybody, my business is everybody's business? I kind of am saying that to some degree. So I want you to keep, keep listening and, and try to kind of lean into to that idea and that concept if it's new to you. If you're a believer and you've kind of drifted away and saying, you know, well, I'm kind of, what I do just affects me. It's just my life. It doesn't have anything to do with you. Actually, it does. Actually, it does. Paul affirms the community of Christ, other believers in Philemon's household. And he begins to speak into Philemon's heart by appealing to these specific attributes you're going to see in this letter that provide a Christ-centered foundation for how we're to resolve conflict. Have you noticed that Christians usually don't resolve conflict any better than anybody else? And I think as those come along, there's this beautiful opportunity. It's this powerful way that we can speak truth. How would people know? I mean, just because you show up at work and you're a little nicer than the non-Christians. Maybe you don't cheat on, you know, your time card or, you know, other things. Or you get back on your lunch break on time. Or, I mean, you're, you smile more and you're honest in your paperwork. But how, how, other than those things, I mean, a good person could do that. How do we speak into the lives of the people around us who don't know Christ? Without getting up on the, you know, the conference room table and going, Hey, everybody. <laughs> I was asked to leave Bearden High School once when I was a youth minister. And I said, but I've been coming here for years. And I've got such a good relationship with everybody. And they said, well, another youth minister came into the cafeteria during lunch one day. He got up on the table and he began to preach. And he began to yell at kids. And they asked him to step down. And he wouldn't because he, he saw himself as this martyrish, you know. And I said, oh, wow. And he just was really obnoxious. And so... We've had to shut down everybody coming into this room without permission. And I thought, oh, I kind of wished he hadn't done that. And I know he felt like a hero. And I know he went back to his church and said, pray for me. I'm being persecuted. And I thought, not exactly. We were reaching a lot of students. But you kind of maybe didn't use the wisest judgment in how, you know, you, you did that. How do we? And the funny thing is, is that God's given us these opportunities all the time just to live out Jesus in front of people in ordinary, everyday, simple ways and sometimes extravagant ways. Yeah, sometimes you may be called on to do something bold and, and really way out there like that. Uh, but most of the time, it's these day-to-day -day attitudes and behaviors that are going to tell people, and that's what spoke to me. 
You know, I noticed my friends, wow, there's really just something different about the spirit of this guy. There's something different about the way he approaches life and his worldview. And it just drew me in. There was something fascinating and captivating about that. Do your fellow uh, students, your classmates, your co-workers, the people in your neighborhood, uh, if you even know their names, uh, do they sense something a little different about her? The way he approaches things, he's not just a nice guy. There's something else that fuels who he is. Paul understood that. Uh, and he affirmed the people around uh, everybody involved and said, you're all part of this, and we're going to use this as an opportunity to witness and express ourselves to the world. And his first appeal is to a sense of this family unity that we have as believers. He opens the letter with this greeting, and I want you to look at verse 1 and 3. And it's a very short letter, so we're, we're not even talking about chapters when we walk through this. We're just talking about verses. It says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Uh, to um, Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul could see beyond his own chains. He could see that I'm not just a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Christ. You know, I mean, he took it to a whole next level. He said, by God's will, I'm in jail. This is kind of where the Lord has me right now. But he didn't, you know, just whine about that or just sit in the darkness and go, well, you know, I guess my ministry, what, what can I do? I mean, here I am, so I'll just kind of wait. No, he used that as a foundation to, to push forward and to think, okay, God, what do you want me to do next? How can I influence the lives of people around me? And he understands that the hand of God moves every piece on the board and that his current circumstances, no matter how restricting they are, have some divine purpose. And he looks around for that purpose. And by referring to Philemon as our beloved brother, and this is kind of new language. Jesus started talking like that. When he came and he would refer to Yahweh, he would refer to Elohim as father. And then he took it to a next step and he said, not only father, because everybody's going, really, you're calling God your father? I think you're going a little too far. He goes, oh, yeah, how about I call him daddy? <laughs> daddy, when I pray, I just say daddy. And then Paul picked that up. And Paul said, when I say it, I say daddy too. I call him papa. And people were a little like, well, I don't know if you should do like that. That's, you're really kind of intimate. He goes, yeah, that's the whole point. Jesus broke these barriers of formality. And Paul says, I see my chains. But I want you to begin to understand that this is a family community that God has built. And so he calls him brother, fellow worker. Paul points to this underlying foundation of their relationship. There's a mutual love. There's a commitment to Christ. And I sense that wherever I go. When I visit churches, even places where I don't even speak the language, there is something there in the atmosphere. There is a relationship, there is a connection that you already sense is there, and it's in Jesus. It's not because we have anything in common necessarily. It's just Jesus uh, that pulls us and glues us together. Paul knows that, and he's building this new community. 
as Paul and Timothy, you know, they had devoted their whole lives, their, their entire existence to following Jesus. And now so had Philemon. And he kind of hosted this church. Uh, it's probably a house church that met uh, on his property uh, there in Colossae, in his home, uh, you know, every Sabbath, every Sunday, you know, the first day, the Lord's Day, he would, you know, bring out trays of refreshments. Hey, everybody, come on in. And, and they would begin to have church. Paul, as he writes, he just empties himself of any rank or status because he was a big gun in the early church. And he lifts Philemon's service and he unites it with his own. And, and to him, the way he communicates, he says, we're equal. We're brothers. We follow the same Lord. And he goes on to uh, include Aphia. He says, she's our sister. And, and Archippus, he's a fellow soldier. He's, he's with us in his greeting. You see how he just pulls everybody in. Now, most, most people assume that Aphia was Philemon's wife. So she would have been the, the most affected by this runaway slave. She would have been concerned with everything that's happening in the household, in the home. That kind of fell to her, and she ran things. So it's only fitting that Paul would say, yeah, you too. You're included when I write this letter. Uh, it's to you too. You're a part of the conversation regarding Onesimus and Philemon and their relationship. Archippus was probably Aphia's son. So finally, this greeting comes. It says, and to the church in your house and to everybody else. Just go ahead and read this letter out loud. It's not secret. You don't have to, uh, you know, close it up when you're done and say, okay, well, we're going to put, go put this in the dresser because I, I don't want the kids to see this letter, you know. I, I don't want the servants, I don't want the other slaves to find out about this. He goes, no, read it to everybody. There's no secret about it. I want everybody to hear this. So it's not exclusively for Philemon's eyes. The entire church. He just gets out in front of everybody and goes, hey, before we begin today, before we take prayer requests, I got this letter. Uh, most of you recognize this guy. You remember him from a few years ago when he disappeared. Well, he showed up today, and here's a letter from Paul explaining what's going on. And it wasn't awkward. So why does Paul do that? Why does he address the entire church with what seems to be like a private affair? You know, like this is, well, we didn't want this to get out in the whole church. He's not subtly putting pressure on Philemon to comply with his request. I mean, that would be kind of manipulative to say, hey, we'll go ahead and read this to everybody. Now, what are you going to do? You know, so everybody knows he gets to be the good guy or bad guy. Uh, what I think Paul is doing is emphasizing how individual decisions ultimately affect the entire believing community. What you do affects us. It, it's just this ripple thing. It, it, affects, it affects all of us. And the healthiest way for anybody to make a tough, ethical, moral decision is within the context of community support. You got something you're feeling is kind of shady? Uh, mention it to your community group and ask them what they think. And, well, I don't know if I want to do that. I got a feeling they're not going to steer you into the, well, yeah, we think that's okay. Or they're probably going to step up and go, whoa, brother, I don't think you ought to take that. I, oh, sister, maybe you shouldn't, maybe you should pull back from that. They're probably going to speak to you in love and tell you some good information. Because they're not, you know, they're, they can be more objective. You know, sometimes you want to go in a certain way. And you can convince yourself and you can rationalize everything and think, well, I think it's okay because, and you, and you check your list off. Take that list and that thing and put it in front of your community group. Put it in front of your Bible study class. Bring it to the church and say, hey, what do you guys think about this? 
probably going to give you a good answer and steer you. And Paul knew that we're doing this together. So by addressing this private letter to the entire church, he's implying that sometimes the church, sometimes your brothers and sisters in Christ have a voice in the decisions that a believer maybe used to consider his own, her own. This is just for me. Now you're not doing this by yourself. Today, I get it. We live in a culture that values the right to privacy. We all want boundaries, and I think that's healthy. I'm not saying, you know, um, and I've been in places where people shared things, and you thought, oh, boy, I think <laughs> I don't know if you should have told that, you know. But, and I understand that there's something inappropriate or appropriate at different moments. Uh, but for the most part, we're not there. That's not my biggest concern and what I'm worried about is for us to say too much or to share too much or to try to pull in other people praying with us. But when we think, well, who are you to tell me or to know how, you know, this happened or, or what? I, I just, and that's a response that would probably be a lot more common. Most of us wouldn't appreciate um, somebody else being aware of some of our own issues and, and things like that, a runaway daughter or an unfaithful worker or how should we discipline you know, this person or what about my husband's an alcoholic and he's been abusive. You think, no, we're going to kind of keep that quiet. We don't want to know that. But when we're joined in Christ, we're joined with one another. So I'm not, I, hope, I hope I'm being clear about this. I'm not saying that you need to tell everything, but I'm saying you need safe environments you need places where you have brothers and sisters around you. A safe place that you can say, here's my deal. Here's what's going on with me. And I need some prayer support. I need some help. I, I, need, I need you guys to tell me, uh, what do you think you know, God's up to? Where, where do you think he's leading in this? And then you do that for them as well. So we have this beautiful picture of Philemon and Aphia. They're managing their house. They've got all these family ties all these tasks, all these things that they think are holy uh, because it's all under the lordship of Christ. And this church meets in the same house where he lives. So Paul naturally expects Philemon. I think, you know, you're going to consider how your decisions affect the, the impact this, this whole community. And even though Philemon, at, at the end of the day, really, he has so legal jurisdiction over all his slaves. He can do whatever he wants to do, and he's okay, he's legal. And sometimes that's the question that we go to first. Well, I didn't do anything illegal. Well, I didn't break any laws. Well, I think we're free to do this. It's not always a question of are you free to do something, even biblically. And I was in a, a discussion, a conversation with a guy, that, you know, and he was, he was saying, well, you know what, you can't find me a verse that says this. And I go, yeah, you know, okay, you're right, I can't. And maybe you're free to do this, but is it wise to do it? Is it the smartest thing? Is it the godliest thing? When the Lord says, Dan, you can stay on this platform. You can go anywhere you want in this platform. You're completely free, but don't get off the platform. You know what most Christians do? They go, okay, Lord, I'm good with that. And this is what we do. We go, man, I, I'm free. I can, do, I can stand right here if I want to. Because you know, there's something in us that kind of makes us go to the edge of what God has you know, allowed you know, what he uh, permits. He says, you know what? You want to be wise, though. You want to pull back and get in the middle of who I am and what my plan is for you. Don't live on the edge of sin. 
Don't live on the edge, you know, of your freedom. I want to live, I want to be immersed. God, I want to be right where you want me to be. And I want to experience you fully and not always be trying to trick you or trying to come up with reasons or loopholes, you know, that I can live in an inappropriate way. And so Philemon, he extends, and he's being called to extend grace and peace that was given to him to this runaway, thieving slave who wronged him. And now he's back, and legally he can do whatever he wants to that guy. And Paul said, you're right. You can do whatever you want to do to him. What I'm asking you to do is to step up and to go beyond that. And when he does that, he appeals to this family encouragement. Look at verses 4 and 5. I love this verse. I've written this at the end of several letters that I've written people sometimes. He says, I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers because I hear of your love and your faith toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. He says, I hear about you. Philemon, I know you. I know the kind of guy you are. And in his jail cell, Paul had a lot of time to think. He had plenty of time to pray uh, and to think through what was important. And out of that, he began to be grateful. Instead of getting a bad attitude and thinking, man, I'm just in jail day after day. My trial's coming up. Things don't look so good. Uh, But he begins to think about all these people that have made a difference in his life and people that he admires and how thankful he is. He says, Philemon, when I think about you and when I pray for you, I'm so glad God put you in Colossae. You're making such a difference there. You are kind of the guy I can you know, point to people. When people say, hey, we're moving to Colossae. Do you know of any good churches? Oh, yeah, Philemon's church. You've got to meet this guy. He's the real deal. I'm so glad you're the kind of guy I can brag about and, and point people to. And he does that. At every mention of Philemon's name, Paul would lift up his heart in gratitude. Say, Lord, thank you so much for his influence of grace. I'm so grateful. Philemon, whenever I think about you, I just thank God. He just affirms him. They're words of encouragement. And I think Philemon needed that. Before Paul says, now I've got something I've got to say, but let me tell you right up front, I believe in you, I respect you, and I think you are the guy. You are the man. And uh, you're a brother to me, I'm equal to you, and what I'm about to say doesn't change who I think you are. I'm just going to affirm you like that. Words are incredibly powerful tools, aren't they? What we say and how we say it can draw us close into uh, the hearts of others, or it can cause pain. Um, The staff and I went to visit uh, Hayden Fugit in the hospital, and I I think this, yeah, we were in the garage, and we were about to go up, and this family came in, and, and this little kid is about to, he's got something wrong with his hand, but he's about to, he's trying to hit the button, but he doesn't hit it, you know, and he kind of stands there. And finally his mother just looks at the child and said, take your rotten finger and hit the button. And the kid looks at his finger, and I think, we all look at her like, why would you say that? Why would you talk so mean to your child? In a few minutes when we were around the child, we understood. He probably, you know, after a day or two, I might talk mean to him too. But, you know, but I could tell. He was just like, okay, I'll hit the button with my... So for the rest of the time, you know, we got up to our floor and I said, hey, Joe, yeah, hit that button with your rotten finger. And, uh, and we said that for the rest of the day because of that, you know, I thought, wow, that was such a powerful thing. And that kid hears something like that every day. Don't you know? He does. You know, like that. some of you grew up hearing stuff like that all the time. 
I was, I was in Toys R Us down the street, and I'm an aisle over, and I hear this boom as some boxes of toys fell over, and I heard a mother's voice say, you're so stupid. I walked around, and I started to, you know, like, hey, you don't know me, but and I thought, no, nah, I don't know how bold I should be. But, you know, they're picking up these boxes, and she looks up, not realizing I heard, but I just thought, you just called him stupid. You know what? He'll probably grow up to be stupid. And you can thank yourself for that because you've trained him to be. Words are powerful. And some of you have heard some awful words in your life, and you've bought into that, and you've believed that. And I would venture to guess that 90 to 100% of those words are lies. They're just lies. And you've listened and you've believed it. So the enemy can just continue to crush you and to push you down. And some of you are living in a circumstance and you hear this voice says, it's never going to get any better. It's never going to change. She's always going to be like that. Well, he's just the wet way. And, and, or this, I'm just going to lose again. Or I'm just not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not thin enough. I'm not this enough. I'm not that enough. The image just beats you with that. It's just lies. Because words, he knows how words. You know what? The same thing can happen in the other way. Words can be tremendously powerful for good. You have within your personality and your voice the power to change other people's lives in extraordinary ways just by what you say, just by thinking to say what you already believe about them. I'm asking the Holy Spirit to retrain me in this because I realize sometimes there are times I walk past people, I walk past things, and I, and I don't stop to think, hey, you know what? I really appreciate that. Hey, Dan Kathy. You are a stand-up guy, and you took an incredible risk by speaking up and just telling the truth, and I respect you for that. You go. Tell the truth in love. Or, you know, there's so many people around us who just need a good word. And Paul did that. Fleeman's already a great man of faith. Um, but you know what? You can have faith in a lot of things but get stuck in your life. And here's a big principle, and you just think about this. Faith only derives its value from its object. Your faith can be amazing and strong, but the important thing is not so much how much faith you have, it's what your faith is in. That's what's crucial. Faith derives all of its power, all of its authority from, from what it, where it places itself. And when Christ is the object of your faith, lives are transformed uh, and, you know, from the cliffs of despair. Hearts that are broken and wounded are changed from the inside out. And Philemon possesses that kind of faith. And fortunately, his faith is anchored in the person of Jesus. So it's in the right place. So Paul leans into that. He goes, okay, we're, it's not this codependent thing, this mushy, gooey, superficial, emotional kind of existence, but it's not this hard-nosed, cold-hearted legalism either. You know, there, there's something different that happens in Christ. There's something, you know, different. True love never compromises its standards. It never rolls over in the face of sin, but it leads us and those we care about closer and closer to Jesus. Anything else is going to be 
It's so disappointing. The Lord leads Paul to encourage his brother and to affirm him. And in this prayer, he prays for Philemon. He said, and I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love. Wouldn't you love to somebody say that's about you? You know, when I'm around you, I just, oh, your love and your spirit, every time I'm around you, I just feel comforted. Just by being around you, there's something that just happens. When you walk into the room, everybody kind of goes, whoa, that's... And he says, because of the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Hearts. I had a friend in college, and he just had that sort of infectious spirit about him. He's a minister down in Florida now, but he just come in the room, and everybody just, you can just see people almost start to smile beside, you know, without even realizing it, just unconsciously, because he had that thing about him. And I remember asking him, and he talked real funny. He's, a, he's a, just a real colorful guy. And he said, jam up all the time. Jam up, brother. You know, I never knew what that meant exactly. It's kind of like, yo. Uh, he would say, yo, jam up, brother. He'd say, it's Jesus. Ooh, jam up. I go, okay, jam up. You know? And I'm just, I'm so happy to be around this guy. Uh, and I think this is the kind of guy that Philemon is. And Paul says, don't stop being that person. I acknowledge that you have authority and that you can do whatever you want to do. But I also see your track record. Uh, I'm not praying for your success, Philemon, specifically in your evangelism or missions or as a pastor. Uh, I'm referring to the way you just affect people by your love. The way you treat people is such a powerful testimony to those outside the church of who we really are. There were all these rumors in the culture at that time. One of the rumors was that Christians, because we took the Lord's Supper, because of communion, the rumor got out in Jewish culture that we were, we were um, I started to say barbarian. That's not what I'm trying to say. Cannibals. cannibals. That we were cannibals, that they eat people. I mean, that's one of, and now I, I've been watching the news recently because we're in the news again, you know, as Christians, and there's all these wacky things that Christians think this and Christians want to do this. I go, no, we don't. You know, and it's going to be that way. It's going to be that way even more. We, don't get me on this. Okay, I'm not. I'm just, okay. Man, but we're, you know, we're on, we're on. <gasps> okay. It's going to happen more. You're going to be, you know, you're going to be with people and go, you're a Christian? Wow, do you really eat babies? You really kill? No, we don't do any of that. Well, that's what, you know, this newspaper said and that news station says about you no, there's so many misconceptions and ideas. I mean, the truth is startling enough of the things we believe and how different we are. Okay, I'm doing it, and I say, okay, I'm just going to stop. But just don't be surprised by that. Don't be surprised when you get back to school, you get back to work, and people, there, there's a little something there because we, we're stereotyped by society. Well, Christians, you know, and I, I face it even more. When I'm, when I'm in a specific setting and people find out I'm a minister, Oh, my goodness. He's a pastor. <laughs> and they get some back away and some get mad at me. I mean, just, you know, it's just that's the way it is. And Philemon somehow lived that way, but in this culture, which was just as much as ours, but he just demonstrated love. And Paul said, I love that about you. I love the way that, you know, you're, it's not just useless knowledge, but that you bring something to the table the way you serve those around you. 
There's this one other little thing I just want to mention in this passage in verse 7. When Paul uses, he says, For I have great joy and encouragement from your love, because of the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, comma, brother. Brother. Uh, As Philemon continues to read this letter, and there's parts of it that are going to feel uncomfortable, and he's not going to be sure... But but he's going to learn that Onesimus is also a beloved brother. And Paul says, in sending him back, I'm sending you my very heart. He says, I love this guy. Philemon, what are you going to do? But I'm sending you my heart. I could make you do it. I could just, I could, you know, I could fix this where you kind of have to. I'm just asking you, would you? Because I know the kind of man you are. Would you forgive this guy? Accept him back into your home. I promise his name means benefit or of great benefit. That's what his name literally means. He said, you know what? You thought he was beneficial to you before he ran away. You're about to be blown away. This guy, I I trust him. He's going to do the right thing. You're going to be so glad he's back in your house. He's going to be of a benefit to you. He's a brother, just like us. We're brothers. Is your commitment to Christ reflected in your relational ties? Do the people in your extended family, the people where you work, the people in this church, or whatever church you go to, do they get that the way you relate to other people has been profoundly changed because of your relationship with Christ. A little girl was talking to us the other night, and she goes, Daddy used to get so mad, but he doesn't anymore. I told the dad, I said, cherish that. You need to write that down. Jesus has changed you, and she's noticing it. She's like seven or eight years old, and she gets that you're different because you've spent time with Jesus. People around us need to see. They're kind of different now. Because of Jesus. Are you? It's impossible to be spiritually alive while being disconnected from the body. You cannot do this alone. This means there's no longer any room to think in terms of you and your individuality uh, totally separate from me. Totally separate from the people around you. We have been joined together in Christ and every benefit, um, every individual, it, it all flows together. To the degree that genuine love and mutual respect undergirds these, this relational foundation that we have with each other. And all the conflicts and all the stuff just begins to fade away. All the drama begins to kind of melt under this tremendous pressure of love that we have from Jesus. I was looking at this, trying to edit it again yesterday, and, and at the end of it, I thought, okay, is it going to be clear? To, are people going to understand? Like, so that's great, Dan. What do you mean do? And I always worry about that. I always think, when you walk back out, you're going to go, okay, that was nice, but I have no idea what, he, what his expectations are now. Where, did, where does this land with you? Where does it land with me? 
And some of the thoughts that came to my mind as we move into this moment where we can reflect and act on it, because if it just stays in your knowledge, yeah, I know I ought to do this, that's useless. It's only when we act on it. And I think some of you need to be connected to a community of believers. You need to be connected to a church. For some of you, it needs to be this church. It needs to be Calvary. For some of you, it's someplace else. Uh, but you need to go through um, this kind of this formal process, kind of like an adoption or like when you're born or like when you join a team or a company and you sign the contract. Or there's something about being a part of a community of believers and saying, yes, I'm a member there. I belong there. Some of you need to take that step and you should join a community. Some of you have people in your life that need your acceptance and they're not sure they've got it. And you need to communicate to them that they do. For some of you dads and moms, it's your children. It may be, I'm not even going to begin to, to guess it, all that. And I think some of you need affirmation. Some of you need to give it. Some of you are holding back because you don't want to give somebody the upper hand or what, for whatever reason, you're not speaking words of affirmation into other people's lives and you need to do that. And maybe even as I'm saying it, somebody's coming to your mind. It could be a child or an adult. It could be a senior adult. It could be somebody uh, that, that, that has a service that's for you in your life. I, I, don't, I don't know. Somebody needs affirmation in your life. And I'm going to pray the Holy Spirit speaks to you. And that you would respond not just with words, but with words and with actions. It could be in your home. It could be here at church. It could be in your workplace. I don't know. But I'm going to ask you this. When, where, and how are you going to act on this? When, where, and how are you going to do it? Are you going to say the words? Are you going to do the next step that the Lord leads you to do? That's what I want us to think about for the next few moments and maybe make some uh, commitments. God, Tuesday... I'm going to call, um, you know, Larry, and I'm going to tell him, I, man, I just hadn't told you this. I think you are the greatest boss, and, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to get it. I just, I'm going to go over to, to Sue's house. I'm going to do this. I'm, what is it God's going to lead you to do in this community? Would you stand, and let's pray about that. Uh, Father, we feel... Paul's passion in his heart so strongly in this little letter and all of us have had conflict with others and we've come out sometimes well and sometimes not so great on the other side of that today we're going to ask that you would begin a process where we can reconcile with people around us especially if there's conflict if there's some kind of a lingering problem or issue. Give us the grace to know how to move forward and, and to clear that, to extend forgiveness and grace and mercy, and to receive it. Father, some of us have people around us, they just need to be affirmed and accepted. And we're the people to do that. Would you speak to us right now and show us what is the next step? Where do we go from here? When we walk out, what is it you want us to do over the next few days? I trust you to do that, and I thank you for it as we pray together about it in Jesus' name.